Tonight on Arena, the holdovers Mean Girls and Werner Herzog Radical Dreamer up for review and the Sao Paulo Dance Company make their Irish debut. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and you can watch us on live stream. We're on RTE.ie forward slash Arena. Starting with movie reviews this evening, we're looking at the Holdovers, a film about uh, disgruntled glass classics teacher and his very privileged students at an elite American boarding school. This one stars Paul Giamatti and Davi Devine, Roy Randolph, both of whom we spoke to on the programme uh, yesterday evening. Mean Girls, uh, which is a musical reboot of what itself was a reboot, Tina Fey's 2004 film about students ganging up on one student uh, and a musical version of that tale, as I said. Finally then, we leave the students behind and look at a new documentary, Werner Herzog, Radical Dreamer, the study of the legendary filmmaker directed by Thomas van Steinacker. It includes a star-studded lineup of contributors with me in studio this evening to discuss all three films and more besides, because there's a lot happening in the film world at the moment, Cara O'Doherty and John Maguire. Let's start with the Holdovers, a movie, as I said, about the classics teacher, Paul Hunnam, played by Paul Giamatti. Very posh, fee-paying boarding school that he works at in 1970s America. He demands that his students respect his beloved's classics, but they have no interest, much to his annoyance. Um, Paul Giamatti, you could say, by car, is almost kind of made to play that role, wasn't he? Oh, that's the way he plays it, as if it's him. Oh, it's it's very hard to believe that this is actually an acting performance. <laughs> he is so curmudgeonly, so grumpy, um, and and so so dedicated to his his fine classics. He just cannot mm. understand why his students don't love it as much as they did. It's 1970. The love of the classics. It's it's not what it was. The respect for teachers isn't the same, and he is struggling very hard with this. But he thinks it's because they're very rich kids and that they're spoilt and. That's the real reason why they're not interested anymore. Yeah, um, and and the holdovers of the film's title, John, kind of explains to us, you might explain what exactly it means. Well, it's Christmas time. This is a Christmas movie, unfortunately. We're seeing it in the middle of January. That's just the way these things go sometimes. But there is a kind of a January feel to it. There's a weariness to the world of America in the 1970s. But in this elite prep school, this elite boarding school, all boys... Uh, kids that don't get to go home for their par- to their parents, to their families, for one reason or another, are held over. They, they spend Christmas uh, in the school with Hunnam as their yeah. uh, minder, basically, <laughs> because he's got nowhere else to be. He's a bachelor. Uh, he's got no family to speak to him anymore. He's very isolated, very curmudgeonly, very grumpy. Uh, uh, so he's got to look after these five kids initially. But Alexander Payne, the director here and the writer guy, uh, called Jim Hem Jim David rather Hemmingson. Yeah, they engineer away twenty minutes in to drop four of the kids. Literally, Deus Ex Machina, yeah. a helicopter comes over, four of the kids are disappeared, and we're left with just one kid, Angus Tully, played by a newcomer, a guy called Dominic Sessa, who's yeah. a superb performance, and uh, it's him 
uh, Hunnam, played by Giamatti, and the school's hardworking cook, Mary Lamb, who, like you say, the yeah. absolutely terrific Divine Joy Randolph. And she's this no-nonsense black woman who's grieving the loss, the recent loss of her son and in the Vietnam very, War. And it's very interesting that um, the Paul Giamatti, the Hunnam character, says that at one point they're talking about being sent to Vietnam and he says, nobody from Barton, which is the name of the school, goes to, one of the kids says, nobody from Barton goes to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. And he says, yeah except for Curtis Lamb, who is the son who did go, the son of the cook, and was killed there. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the dynamic, I think, it's all three of them really, it's a, little, it's a three-hander in, it, in many tr- ways. It but is. Devine and uh, Paul Hunnam, Devine and Paul Giamatti, rather, there's an interesting dynamic between them. There is, there's a respect there and an understanding, but at the same time, she knows that he is far too grumpy and far too cruel. Yet at the same time, she also knows that most of those kids are brats. But she has that sense of they're brats, but they're still kids. They need minded. And it doesn't matter who you are. You shouldn't be left alone at Christmas. So she has this sympathetic side and she's trying to help him realise that they have to mind Angus, whether they really Mm. want to or not. And yet she has lost her son to to war and she is absolutely devastated. Yet she she can see this young fella who's struggling and she does want to care for him. And, you know, she is Mm. she's kind of fond of Paul in his own grumpy way. Yeah, but as as I said to Paul Giamatti and then Alexander Payne last night, she's sort of a mother to to the two. Yeah, she kind of has to. She takes to, on that role, yeah, whether, yeah, whether yeah. she wants but it or not. But all three of them are kind of abandoned strays, really. Yeah. I mean, they're rattling around this big old building, rattling around this big campus, and they do hit the road. I mean, it's yeah. not it's not so. Uh, it's yeah, not, they, they, they get there out is of a the picaresque campus. here. They it, get it, off campus. Yeah, I wouldn't go into too much detail as to what kind of activities yeah. they get up to once they do leave the place because part of the joy of the film is its evolution it's I mean it's it's so beautifully written that the revelations about each character in each yeah. incident and it's split like you say three ways so there's a lot of work here we have a lot of character yeah. work from all three of them yeah. in terms of the evolution of how the story well, comes Well let's, let's listen to a clip they've been to a party um, Mary has kind of is a little bit the worst for where the, the Devine character is a little bit the worse for her at this stage and the, the relationship between the Paul Giamatti character and the young fella uh, Dominic Sessa it's it's growing they're becoming kind of I wouldn't say fond of each other they're learning how to bear each other so after the party they all come out and, and decide it's, it's time to head home I was right this is why I hate parties that was a disaster total disaster speak for yourself I was having fun Let's take Mary home, make sure she's okay, and we'll come back. Out of the question. Come on, would you give me a break? God, I was hitting it off with Elise. No, oh, Denise, are you kidding me? This poor woman is bereft, and all you can think about is some silly girl. I don't need you feeling sorry for me. See? I'm just saying, this was the first good thing that came with being in this prison with you. Need I remind you that it is not my fault that you are stuck here? Do you think I want to be babysitting you? Oh, no, no, I was praying to the God I don't even believe in that your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a submarine or a flying fucking saucer to take you dead. Yes, a little bit of a revelation. Or is it at the end of that clip, just in case somebody thinks we've given loads away? Um, that is uh, Paul Giamatti, uh, Dominic Sessa and Devine Joy Randolph in a scene from The Holdovers. Um John, as you said, the way this story unfolds is it really does tug you along with it. Mm. Does it take too long 
to do all of that. So. I didn't think so. It's, I it's think the there's a, two hours, isn't it? it? It is. And there's a lot to get through, but I mm. think there's a winning and easy confidence in the way that Payne directs this film. He's very certain of the story and he knows he's working with quality material. And then there's this kind of tactile melancholy this energy about the three characters as they reveal themselves to us and to each other in the story. And uh, the other thing about the holdovers is how close a recreation of a film from 1970 it is. It looks like 1970. It looks like But he, even the way he's play, using the film and the, the crackling of this, I said exactly. this to him last night. That he, could so easily be pastiche. It could yeah. so easily look kind of gauche and weird. And it doesn't at all. It feels absolutely organic and smooth. And it's like a film from that era. Yeah. Hal Ashby movie, actually, from which 1970. Is, which was his... And all those his. textures and all that kind of... Even the soundscape, the soundtrack, even all of those textures combined and everything is pointed at the characters it's not mm. just there for dressing so you might yeah. you, you might think well, it's a, quite a long movie but everything about it is pointing Works you towards the evolution yeah. of these characters uh, one other around. thing just before we wrap on it uh, Cara which is some people might find this rather sentimental but I, I found myself in deep trouble in parts of it like I was very moved by sections of it hard not to be yeah, it sort of hits you at different points. I yeah. mean, and, and the thing about it is, well, we can't say there's certain there's certain characters have, have their their arc. We can't really say yeah. what, what the reasons are, but there's yeah. moments where you just mm. you feel kind of like a, a punch in the gut. Well, you've got to know them really yeah. well. Yeah, and that's yeah, the yeah. nice thing. It builds each character up quite slowly, um, and then you you realise you've fallen for them. Yeah, and you've fallen for their gruffness, and and you're falling for their 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 little odd and uh, oddities yeah. and you really you feel for them and yeah I certainly I felt the OLM eyes well up a couple of times <laughs> more stars from you Cara oh a solid four for me it's it's so good performances are excellent and yeah. I'm still amazed that Dominic Sessa is a first time actor yeah. what is he going to do mm, next I know remarkable yeah, yeah. he's superb yeah. and, um, and Paul Giamatti oh, obviously up for the Oscar against Killian Murphy oh I think there's no doubt about that this is an awards worthy performance and to me what Hunnam does is he manages to make an ancient civilization. It's what he's trying to do in his classroom. This, it's 50 years ago, 52 years ago. Yeah. So he's trying to bring that ancient civilization to life again by making it feel vibrant and real and alive. And he and does connected. that. Stars. I think he does really well. I did a five star movie. I love it. Five star movie from it. you, John. That is the holdovers. Let's move on then to Mean Girls. Um, not based on the 20-year-old movie of the same name, but rather the 2018 Broadway musical uh, about that, uh, which is based on the film. This stars Anguri Rice as Katie. Is, is that how we say her name? And Renee Rapp as Regina. Maybe give us give us the kind of basic setup of Mean Girls. It kind of says it on the tin, It, it kind of does. So it follows the format of both the original film and the musical. Mm. Uh, Katie is... Uh, I, I'm, I'm not even sure how you managed to say her name but you, you've got it there she is this fresh faced earnest school student who's been transported from living in Africa moves to this school oh. that is like any other high school full of jocks and nerds and this that and the other but the school is it is run by the plastics and the queen of the plastics is uh, Regina played by uh, Renee Rapp and the plastics are they are cruel they are mean but they are beautiful and yeah they rule the corridors and very oh. early on Katie realises that actually School is the exact same as the jungle. It is all about the survival of the fittest. And if she's going to survive, 
she is going to have yeah. to make her way into the plastics. And are we in 2024 in terms of this story that's been told? Are we in the 2004 of the of the film, John? No, it's very much 2024. So it's, it's, one of the, it's been modernised in that respect, so. taken forward 20 years. What the uh, dire- directing duo, Arturo Perez Jr. and Samantha Jane, how would they distinguish this from the previous version is in how smoothly they integrate the new era of social media and internet memes and TikTok videos and all that kind of thing into the musical numbers in particular and all that petty backstabbing and infighting. It gives it a kind of a global dimension. There's responses in coming in from everybody who's watching these videos. But uh, at the same time, you're still watching Mean Girls that you were watching 20 years ago. And it's the same story. It's the same story. And Well, I suppose uh, high school, one could argue, are probably not that different in 2024 than they were in 2004. Probably not. And, uh, but but it, 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 it struggles, I think. Mm. It is very cleverly produced but it feels a lot lighter than it did 20-odd years ago. All right, and uh, Cara is nodding in disagreement at that, and we'll come (laughs) back to find out a little bit uh, as to why she is. But first of all, let's listen to, and it's a piece of the music, because I think this brings a kind of a different flavour, a colour to the piece than the the original film. This is Renée Rapp playing Regina George, accomplished singer herself, and here is the song from that 2024 version of Mean Girls, and it's Regina introducing herself and telling us about the type of person that she is. My name is Regina George And I am a massive dean I will grind you to sand Beneath my lieutenant There we go. That is uh, Rene Rapp introducing the character of Regina in the new musical version of Mean Girls. Now, you were you were disagreeing with uh, John when he was saying, ah, you know, it's lost something. I think it's what he was basically saying from the 2004 version. But this is the, a version of the 2018 musical. I suppose it's important to remember that. You liked it more, I think. I really did. I think there's two things. I think there's comfort in high school movies. The plots are always the same. They never really change. And there's something about that that's charming. But what I really like about this is that by having it now, the diversity is fantastic. There is every shade of LGBTQ plus character in it. There is people of colour and prominent characters. And it's really great just to see that level of diversity, which was missing from the first one, which was then in the musical. Mm. But I just think the songs in it, uh, I don't... John that's the that, second time I've heard it's very powerful I it is They're you fab- get a sense that she's a dark character yeah she mm. is and there's fabulous singers and uh, one of the girls who comes to kind of Katie's rescue she was the, the lead in Moana a few years ago they're all fabulous singers I think the songs are really catchy and relevant for today they really kind of tick the box there's a bit of rock there's a bit of pop there's a bit of rap and if you like musicals which I do and if you're a fan of the original I mean you can't really go wrong you were you were conceding in some of your gestures as Cara I was, was speaking, John. She's uh, Cara. You're absolutely dead right about the diversity, uh, which is front and center in the film. The the first people that uh, the Katie character befriends are Janice and the very flamboyant Damien, who played by Aoli Carvalho and Jack L. Spivey, and they're both 
superb. They really are really, really good. And, uh, you know, I did have issues with the f- deadening familiarity of it. I mm. think a film like this has to justify its existence, really. And I think it doesn't do that well enough from concept to execution. And despite the, all of those layers and an energetic cast and some very clever contemporary touches, there's only just enough here, I think, to make the effort worthwhile. And Tina Fey involved here, as she was in the original film, she, is, she reprises her character, she brings her character back. And does somebody else does that in this film as well, is there? Or is it just Tina Fey who does it? There, there's somebody else who might be back, but we shall say no. Okay. Um, All right. Maybe, maybe that might Sean might have gone a bit mad there. We're not spoiling anything here. Uh, but yeah, she is back, and I think it's it's very clever the way she's she's sort of there's a there's a few kind of harken back comments to how you can't say it with things like how you used to. So they're all very aware of the changes that have have come along, and it's great to see her. Even if she, if she yeah, I mean, it's, it, does she look? Like she's old enough to be herself 20 years ago, probably not, you know, but uh, it, yeah, she's great. And she has, there's an extra side to her character that wasn't there in the past. Did she do any singing for us? She tries, she begins and then realises, oh, no, 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 no. Tina Fey can do many things. <laughs> singing is not one of them. Right, okay. Stars from you on this one, Cara. I think it's, there'll be, there may be a house divided. I think there might be. I think uh, four stars for me. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, and I do think that fans of the original or the musical are going to flock to it. I think it's going to be... Familiarity breeding contempt for you, John? Oh, we're not that far apart, Cara. It's a three-star movie for me. But for after two decades of trying to make Fetch happen, Sean, it's still... Is not. I'm sure uh, those who know the film will make that, will understand that. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. And if you don't, well, go and find out what that's all about. So that is Mean Girls. Um, Not quite as divided as I thought we were going to be on that one. Let us move on then to Werner Herzog, Radical Dreamer, Thomas von Steinecker's uh, feature on the German filmmaker Werner Herzog. Documentary aims to go behind the public persona of this cult filmmaker and a career that spans five decades. The story is interlaced with contributions from A-list actors, family collaborators and fellow filmmakers. Um, I, let's talk about the, the fact that there's a public persona for yeah, Bernard Herzog because yeah. this is the kind of... He's a personality. Is, yeah. He's a cult, really. We, he, very early steps, on, we see him in The Simpsons. Ex- the Simpsons, there you go. That's the uh, absolute rubber stamp of public uh, celebrity in the US. He's uh, It's a curious thing. Over the last 20 years or so, he's become a meme, a personality. He's basically been reduced to this strange German man who talks in whimsical mm. riddles with a funny accent. And that's but he's not made, the filmmaker he is. That's nothing to do really with the kind of films that he makes, but he's embraced it and he's made good ground with it. He's made a lot of capital out of it. He turned himself into an actor. He's in The Mandalorian. He's in Star Wars. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's a very curious thing because although the film Radical Dreamer, this is a fairly mediocre run through Herzog's career from... Uh, von Steinacker, the director. And it opens with this recap of that new cult celebrity. And it hits most of the marks in the five decades or so that Herzog has been making films. But it never really digs beyond the surface of mm. the the kind of the, the highlights, the stuff that, uh, you know, is on the surface. And right. I, I, I'd like him to have done a little bit more. I have had the curiosity uh, to go a little bit deeper and it yeah. doesn't ever do that. Let's have a listen to this is yeah, after we get that kind of and there's a big long list of celebrities who tell us how amazing he is. Um yeah see if I it was like a, a DVD extra Sean, you know yeah, uh, Joshua Albert, Nicole Hannah, Kidman Patty Smith, Robert Patterson, uh, Nicole Kidman, Vim Vanders, Christian Bale, the list goes on and on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, 
Then we find him in his car after they've all said how brilliant he is. And he's driving along in his car and, and tells us a little bit, I suppose, about where the, the title for this documentary came from. I do not dream. Very, very rarely. I always feel it as a void, something that was missing. But um, I, I do have an equivalent of dreams when I'm, when I'm walking, for example, or sometimes when I'm driving very long distances, when I'm over 20 hours in the car, all of a sudden the car fills with, uh, with insects and butterflies that are crowding around. My existence has a meaning when I'm trying to uh, do a, a story where I know it is deep inside all of us. And there are certain things that I recognize as being in us, but they have not been articulated yet. And that's, an, for me, an equivalent to dream. There you go, Werner Herzog. Driving in the car for 20 hours, I don't know what sort of journeys he's doing, but he also walked at one stage from he did, to, Paris to Paris as well. Yeah. So he likes, he likes the long journeys. He's a bit he far likes, scumpy in yeah, that in his way. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of that often. But that John talking about, you know, getting in underneath the skin of the man, when I heard that, I thought, oh, I'm going to get... I interviewed him a year and a half ago, and I remember he talked about one of the things he says in this movie, a good soldier of cinema, which he, he sees himself oh, yeah. as. And you get a sense that he's a, a good soldier of art from that uh, sequence about dreams, Cara. I mean, at one point he talks about how when, when one of his films is falling apart, that if, if he can't get that made, he'd rather not live. He, yeah, he's, yeah. he would happily die than, than not than, than not succeed with the film. Like creating to him is life. But I mean, he is very unusual. <laughs> and and that, that idea of, I, I'm fascinated with this idea of not dreaming. And I, I, I'd love to know if, if this is why he has created these incredible worlds and why his imagination is so good. If you never dream, is this yeah. the, I'm fascinated by that idea. What yeah, I, I wish Von Steinacker was fascinated by that idea yeah, because say, he just hangs these things there and he never examines them. Yeah, but he, he, you see, a two-hour documentary, Sean. Yeah, I, are you very familiar with all of? I the would work be with Herzog. And is yeah. that part yeah. of? Is that, that part, is of, the part issue of the problem? Here? This is a reissue rather than a re-examination of some of the crustier legends that Herzog that have built up around Herzog over the years, many of which he, he invented himself. I mean, the man has had a has never been shy about telling lies in interviews and creating stories. I think you mean just that perhaps he has a persona that might express things differently. Exactly. And he's bored, I think, of being asked the same questions over and over again. So he comes up with funny answers, you know. Mm. But I, I was watching, I was reminded, there was a quote from Kingsley Amos, the novelist. And they were like, oh, why haven't you ever read, written a memoir? And he's like, I've, well, I've written all the novels and the novels are the memoir. And this, mm. is, this is the same thing with Herzog. The, Herzog is in the films. You don't necessarily need but a documentary like this when, oh, so that is so yeah. f- flat and bored and but not when you, that when, interesting. But when, when you heard from his, his brothers... Um, oh, that's superb. Yeah, those sequences, those, those superb. Two, yeah, the, really the, interesting. Yeah. Lucky Sipitich is yeah. the, Herzog's original yeah, who name. Producers, who produces... Uh, the and films. his brother. And 
a long time producer and they talk about some of their more memorable adventures particularly with yeah. Aguirre the Wrath of God and Fitzcarraldo which are extraordinary achievements physical achievements not just artistic achievements well he takes a shape up a man and <laughs> there's a great interview with Wim Wenders his fellow new German cinema filmmaker uh, and there's a couple of really interesting sections with directors of photography that have worked with them and the kind of challenges But overall you were faced. a bit disappointed. I was because yeah. I, I was thinking why am I wasting my time watching this when I could be watching a Werner Herzog movie? Well it might send you to people who don't know the work that well off to watch it. Stars from you John? Uh, no I'm after Schlaten it but it's two out of five stars because I, I wanted more from you it. Now, it's, more. It has to be said Sean this is a limited engagement it's in the lighthouse for a couple of days yeah. and it's in the Triscoll in Cork it's yeah. not nationwide. It's an not hour and a half I think it's not two hours is it? Um, uh, and it's, and it's under the it's two like two hours, yeah. I yeah. have to say. Um, and what are you saying, Car overall and stars? I, I'm not a, I'm not a Herzog diehard, um, so maybe this is why, but I actually really enjoyed it and I, I loved the idea of trying to figure out who was the myth and who was the man. And, and John's yeah, yeah. going to not like me now, but I'm giving it four stars. Oh, okay. No, yeah, yeah. Probably okay. <laughs> probably okay. Uh, disagreement is good. good. All right, so mixed, uh, mixed house on that one for sure. Werner Herzog, Radical Dreamer. A big day today uh, in terms of, first of all, we had the nominations for the 75th British Academy of Film and Television Awards announced this afternoon. What is in the Irish acting water at the moment, John? Yeah, it's something a going really on here, good Sean, day for, you, for the Irish once again, isn't it? It's a big show and today at the BAFTAs. Barry Keoghan makes it two BAFTA nominations in a row with Saltburn. That's his third nomination in total. Killian Murphy gets his third nomination for Oppenheimer and Paul Meskell is recognised for a phenomenal performance in Andrew Hayes' heartbreaking gay ghost story, All of Us Strangers. Even though, and the one big omission is his co-star and fellow Irishman, Andrew Scott. Because it's, and, it's, 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 Andrew, it's Andrew Scott's movie. Paul Maskell's brilliant in it, but it's Andrew Scott's movie. It's Scott's movie. the lead, yeah, absolutely. And the two of them are enjoined in, yeah. throughout the film. I mean, I'm going to start a campaign for justice at this point. Well, so my dear sure. listeners, join me. If he doesn't <laughs> pop up at the Oscars, and I don't know, the Oscars is much more difficult to predict, uh, but... Uh, uh, I think Scott uh, has been hard done by here. But it's not the only thing. Element Pictures co-production, Poor Things, that has yeah. 11 nominations, including Best Picture and what they call Best British Picture and Best Actress for Emma Stone, who in fairness is very, very good in it. And the film was also recognised for Robbie Ryan's cinematography and a host of other technical awards as well. And all of these films and all of these actors are very likely to figure out the Oscar nominations, the big ones now in the Oscars, uh, when they're announced next Tuesday afternoon. Our time who are you expecting to see and hear there? I would see everybody that you've seen so far at the BAFTAs uh, uh, from an Irish point of view. That's yeah. what you're... And it is a shame, I think, that we don't have a repeat, Sean, of what we had last year with Colin Kuhn and An Irish Goodbye. We don't have a film to hang on to. There isn't a documentary that's made the... But the, uh, but the Irish That's acting. made the shop list. Yeah. But what's there? From an acting performance, for us to be able to say, you know, from, from this community, to be able to say that uh, perhaps half of the, uh, Oscar, uh, the, the male actor... Uh, nominations would probably come from Irish. Yeah, we, we have no, um, no females yeah. in, in the midst of all of that. Is that purely down to it, the films that have yeah, been made in the last Yeah, I think it's timing. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's no reflection on our female talent. Yeah, it's purely the, the practicalities sure. of the, of the men folk are And the release schedule, films, yeah. the way these films have been um, released yeah. as well. Yeah. So uh, on all of that news, two big festivals and um, Irish, the Irish language film Kneecap History-making premiere at the Sundance, yeah, Sundance. Film Festival. Can't wait to see that. Actually. That that's tonight. Um, lots of buzz about that. And you also wanted to mention the Berlin Film yeah, Berlin, Festival. Uh, Killian Murphy's yeah. film. Uh, we were just saying about in Colleen Kuhn, Claire yeah. Keegan's book. A shortlisted small things like these, which has been adapted by Murphy's 
friend and mm. long-time collaborator, Enda Walsh, the screenwriter and playwriter, playwright Enda Walsh. That's just been announced. It's going to open the Berlin Film Festival, the Berlin Is Alley. that a big deal to yeah. be opening That's that? That's a massive yeah. deal. Is that the it's first the first time Irish? it's ever happened for an Irish film uh, that they would be the opening gala at the Berlin Film Festival. It's the centre of European cinema. Forget about Cannes. Cannes is all about glitz and glamour. Berlin is all about business. And it's it's really where the European film industry gets together well, to thrash out the deals. Yeah. And it's uh, it's fantastic for that. So perhaps in 2025, we don't have a film or a doc this year, but maybe in 2025, if uh, we have a repeat of the Colin Kuhn journey, perhaps, because on the on yeah, Colin, well, Kuhn Colin Kuhn story starts a version of, Berlin as well. uh, of yeah. a Claire Keegan novel as well. Exactly. You know, Foster. And, and this is also they yeah. first started and getting there real well, attention so has, from, you know, outside of Ireland. They first started getting that at the Berlin Film Festival. So good luck to them. Good, good, luck. good, good luck to all of them. Congratulations to all on the BAFTAs. And I'm hoping that I will be speaking to some of those BAFTA nominated actors in the coming days. But I will say nothing until it's there in stone. Uh, Cara and John, thank you very much for coming in this evening. The Sao Paulo Dance Company, one of the foremost dance companies in all of Brazil, will be making their highly anticipated debut in Ireland at the Borgosh Energy Theatre next month. That's on Monday the 5th and Tuesday the 6th of February. The company is at the forefront of the South American dance scene. They combine their contemporary dance techniques with the rhythmic physicality of Latin American dance. Their Irish debut will feature a rich and varied programme of work from three separate choreographers, but each work rooted in Latin America. American or Spanish culture joined now on the phone by Inez Bogea, the artistic director of the Sao Paulo Dance Company, who will tell us more about their upcoming Irish debut. If we talk a little bit about Sao Paulo, first of all, Inez, I think it might give us a sense of what the Sao Paulo Dance Company uh, tries to do. I've heard Sao Paulo referred to as a megalopolis which obviously is is quite a melange of things. How how diverse a place are we talking about and how has that fed into the company? Oh, hello. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, São Paulo is a megalopolis, a rich and diversity and cosmopolite vibe city. And we, of course, we feel that in our body and in our dance. We bring three different pieces mm. and we try to show the diverse of our repertoire repertoire and the vibrant and dynamism of Brazilian dance, special Brazilian dance yeah. from Sao Paulo Dance Company. Yeah, and I, I think the... Uh, okay, okay, sorry. I, I wondered to what extent within the company itself, I mean, obviously you have uh, dancers from diverse backgrounds, from different uh, cultural sites to their, uh, to their, uh, their ethnic origins, all of that. But yet you try to retain within that the individuality of the dancer within that big, that large overall group. How do you do that? Oh, I, I try to, to encourage our dance to express themselves within each piece and all while preserve the distinctive language of the, each choreographer. Of course, it's a delicate balance that we can achieve uh, through daily dedications, a lot of rehearsal, and of course, understanding of the ideas that mm. each choreographer brings to us, to share with us. Well, let's talk about the specifics of the three pieces then to, to get a sense of that. Um, 
before I do that, I'm going to play some of the music that is features in all three pieces and it might give us a sense of, of each of them as we go along. Let's listen to a musical montage which features music from the three pieces that you're bringing to us here in Ireland. <laughs> have some of the music that will feature in the three pieces that Sao Paulo Dance Company are bringing to the Borgosh Energy Theatre here in Dublin at the beginning of next month and Inez Begea of the Sao Paulo Dance Company is with me on the phone this evening and um, the first piece that I want to talk about Inez is Anthem uh, created in 2019 by Spain's Goya Montero who's a, a, a resident choreographer with Cuba's Acosta Danza uh, an ensemble of 14 uh-huh. dancers involved there was was that the first piece of music that we heard that had the the kind of the vocalizations the singing w- w- in the midst of it and maybe explain what the piece is about to me the first music we heard is about Cassia Branches the last one was something all right just to check okay <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we can feel in the piece of Goyo Monteiro, Anten, he used this piece as a metaphor to navigate themes of united and discord, beauty and oral, and symbolize an eternal cycle of destruction and rebirth. That music was created special for the piece we saw in Belton. And uh, he incorporated voice along the rhythmic patterns mm. and anthemic elements that remind us something very familiar. For Goyo, there's a song that we give us the memories, the strong memories yes. of important part of our life. And then he used this metaphor to talk about we are a group of persons could, who could uh, build in a better life yeah. for everybody each day. Tell me a little bit then about uh, the second piece, uh, Gnawa, if I'm saying that correctly, from Nacho Duato, who's an artistic director at Berlin State Ballet. But there's a very Mediterranean feel, I think, there. Yes, he was inspired from uh, Valencia's Mediterranean sense, and he evokes the four elements, water, you can hear the water in music, Earth, we can feel the movement of the group of dancers through the stage, Air is the de- duet that cross the scene, and yeah. the fires that come ritualistic in the hands of dance. I- it's also a ritualistic homage from our connection to nature. And finally, and, uh, and the, the, finally, the third piece then, which is from a Brazilian choreographer, Cassie uh, Abranches. This is Agora. 
<laughs> yes, it's we come to Brazil, we come to the rhythm, the dynamism of our dance. This music was created special by Sebastian Pirafes that used elements of Afro-Brazilian percussion mixed with contemporary rock and songs. And Cassie wants to explore time as a passage, memory and urgency. It's a very uh, rhythmical mm. dance. Well, listen, uh, on the basis of the music alone and as you describe it there, it does sound like a very exciting both uh, visual and auditory experience. So the very best of luck, safe travelling and looking forward to seeing you when you get to this part of the world, Inez. Oh, thank you very much. We are very happy to go to Ireland and Dublin in special to meet you and dance for your audience. Thank Lovely. you very much. Thank you very interview. much, Inez. That's Inez Bogea, Artistic Director of the Sao Paulo Dance Company, who will be making their debut at the Borgosh Energy Theatre on Monday, February the 5th, Tuesday, February the 6th. Tickets are now on sale on Ticketmaster. You can find out more information on Theatre.ie. Wonderful sound that is Yankari Afrobeats uh, and their piece which is called Egba. Wonderful rhythms within all of that and they are one of the guests on the first of our two Tradfest specials. Uh, we're broadcasting from Dublin Castle on Monday and Tuesday of next week along with Yankari who are obviously going to bring those brilliant vibes to the proceedings. We will have Claire Legends, Stockton Swing and of course Limerick's hip-hop trad artist Strange Boy to round off the night there's also Irish Indian duo Indy Celtic and I have to say that first night is exciting but if you're not excited about that you'll certainly be excited about the Tuesday night the second of our broadcasts two legends of international music will be with us Janice Ian and Ralph McTell and the song we'll speak with them and the songs of Janice and Ralph will be sung by Aoife Scott and Toshin so we will get that younger and Irish interpretation of those two very fine singers and songwriters we'll also have Neil Martin and Louise Mulcahy performing from Neil's new musical epic The Sinking of the RMS Taylor The Lost Story of the Victorian Titanic so that's two broadcasts from Dublin Castle next Monday and Tuesday I think those two events will get rid of any cold weather that's about there at the moment you can be there and be part of them if you want to find out how to be there log on to tradfest.com of course we will be broadcasting them so you can hear us here on RTE Radio 1 as well Monday and Tuesday night. Earlier this week, we spoke about the new series on Disney Plus called The Artful Dodger, which focuses on the adult life of the character from Dickens's Oliver Twist. The Artful Dodger is a literary character that has endured since he first appeared in 1838. But there are many characters from the Victorian era that are still relevant to this day. The brilliant detective Sherlock Holmes, the vengeful barber Sweeney Todd and the tormented creation of Frankenstein. These characters have not only weathered the test of time, 
time. They have also captivated audiences through countless adaptation. Uh, but Sherlock Holmes, for instance, holds the Guinness World Record of for the most portrayed human character in film and television. Why so? Well, Claire Clark is joining us this afternoon or this evening to explain all. Sherlock Holmes, I was kind of surprised, but 254 different screen portrayals, Claire, yeah. of, of, of Sherlock Holmes. Why do you think that character in particular has been so attractive for this type of you know, rehashing and reinventing and reimagining? I mean, it's a it's a million dollar question, to be honest with you. I, I think there's various kind of factors going on here. For a start, he's got an incredibly strong visual image. Um, you know, the hat, the cape, yeah. the pipe, the magnifying glass. And all of that really helped, you know, at the time when film and television were coming into being. You could create a very strong visual image of him. And then as a character himself, he's actually, you know, someone who almost always wins. He's super heroic. Yeah. He's reassuring. Um, but he's just, you know, intriguing and weird enough that he's not a goody two-shoes. <laughs> and I guess if, if you speak to people, um, rather than the Arthur Conan Doyle books, they're probably going to remember some screen version of that character they have seen. I guess the one that you, you know and love is probably tells us as much about your generation as it does about anything else. Exactly, exactly. So for me, you know, Sherlock Holmes is Jeremy Brett because I grew up watching Jeremy Brett playing Sherlock Holmes on a Sunday evening, you know, on ITV mm-hmm. at 9pm. For people a bit older than me, it might be Basil Rathbone. Um, you know, for younger people, certainly, it's, it's almost certainly Benedict Cumberbatch. So, you know, I think every generation has its own Sherlock. And, you know, that's a great thing. That There's also a lot of kind of interesting mm. other sort of less well-known adaptations of Sherlock too, yeah. um, you know. So there's something for everybody there. And let's have a listen to uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock Holmes and uh, Watson. Martin Freeman was his Watson, and here's Cumberbatch in typical Cumberbatchian style. I think it's safe to say, but also perhaps Holmesian style, uh, talking through his deductions about a man and woman sitting beside him uh, in a pub and all of the things that he can work out just from looking at them. How about them? The sentimental widow and her son, the unemployed fisherman. The answer's yes. Yes? He's got a West Highland Terrier called Whiskey. Not exactly what we're looking for. Sherlock, for God's sake. Look at the jumper he's wearing. Hardly worn. Clearly he's uncomfortable in it. Maybe it's because of the material. More likely the hideous pattern suggests it's a present, probably Christmas. So he wants into his mother's good books. Why? Almost certainly money. He's treating her to a meal, but his own portion is small. That means he wants to impress her, but he's trying to economise on his own food. Well, maybe he's just not hungry. No. Small plate. Starter. He's practically licked it clean. She's nearly finished her paddle over. If she treated him, he'd as much as he wanted. He's hungry, all right. Not well off, you can tell that by the state of his cuffs and shoes. How do you know she's his mother? Who else would give him a Christmas present like that? Well, it could be an aunt or another sister, but mother's more likely. Now, he was a fisherman, scarring pattern on his hands, very distinctive fish hooks. They're all quite old now. I suggest he's been unemployed for some time. Not much industry in this part of the world, so he turned to his widowed mother for help. Widowed? Yes, obviously. She's got a man's wedding ring on a chain around her neck. Clearly, her late husband's are too big for her finger. She's well-dressed, but her jewelry's cheap. She could afford better, but she's kept it sentimental. Now, the dog, tiny little hairs all over the leg from where it gets a little bit too friendly. But no hairs above the knees, suggesting it's a small dog, probably a terrier. In fact, it is a West Highland terrier called Whiskey. How the hell do you know that, Sherlock? Because she was on the same train as us and I heard her calling its name. And that's not cheating. That's listening. I use my senses, John, like some people. So you see, I am fine. If I didn't know, been better. So just leave me alone. Yeah. <clears throat> OK. OK. Oh, why would you listen to me? 
I'm just your friend. I don't have friends. No. Wonder why. Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock. <laughs> Martin Freeman is watching in the scene there from the television adaptation of Sherlock. Uh, Claire Clark with me this evening, looking at these various Victorian characters who, who are reimagined in many ways. I wonder to what extent, when you hear that, I don't know how many pages that covers in, in the Arthur Conan Doyle book, if the book has an, ex- has an exact uh, version of that. But I wonder to what extent, Claire, when people maybe see these characters in terms of Arthur Conan Doyle and indeed other writers as well, when they see them on the screen and then they go to the books, do they find very different things on the printed page than they see and hear on the screen? Yeah, I think oftentimes they do. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the Sherlock series for the BBC is that it was clearly written by a fan. You know, it's written by somebody who really knows the elements and they know how to uh, pitch it so that if you're a super fan, you get little things maybe that a casual viewer won't. Um, But what I find when I'm teaching Sherlock Holmes is that quite often the students are very aware of the character of of Sherlock Holmes, but they haven't actually read the original stories. And when they go back to them, they find them kind of surprisingly boring because they're not gory, they're not bloody, you know, they're not... um, they're just not what they're expecting, you know, even though they feel that they understand and know Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and if they go back to Dickens and Oliver Twist, they're hardly going to hear a bundle of fellas running around London singing a song like this. <laughs> Consider yourself at home. Consider yourself one of the family. I've taken to you so strong. It's clear we're going to get along. Consider yourself willing. Consider yourself part of the furniture. There isn't a lot to spare. Who cares what ever we got we share? If it's your chance to be, we should see some harder days. Empty lot of days, white grouse. Always your chance we'll meet somebody to foot the bill. Then the drinks are on the house. Consider yourself a mate. We don't want to have no fuss. For after some consideration, we can stay. Consider yourself one of us. There you go, from the 1968 <laughs> musical film of Oliver Jack Wilde as the artful Dodger Mark Lester was of course the innocent blonde haired and doe-eyed <laughs> Oliver in that particular adaptation and a lot of people will probably know the Oliver Twist story from that Dickens more so than any Claire than any of the authors I think probably suffers most from those kind of it's great that there are loads of television adaptations but moving mm. away maybe versions that move away from the book's original intentions is that, yeah. a, is that a good or a bad thing? You know, I think it's I think it's okay. I don't think Dickens would have minded. Dickens was a commercial writer at the end of the day, and he mm. went out and performed his novels um, for audiences, and he would play up bits that he would knew would play particularly well to particular kinds of audiences. But you know, he was also a campaigning novelist, so he's often he's writing about things like child poverty and and uh, domestic abuse and things that are you know quite quite dark so um 
adaptations quite often kind of line things up like in, in that version there with a, a nice little song or whatever yeah. <laughs> you and, know and there's so many versions of uh, A Christmas Carol I mean and everybody will have their, their own particular favourite it might be it's become what's sometimes referred to as a culture text what do we mean by that? Right, yes. Yeah. So basically a culture text is a text that has become sort of interpreted so many times that it's kind of developed a life of its own outside of the original text. So, you know, it's entirely possible, you know, a large amount of the population have probably never sat down and read the Dickens' A Christmas Carol, but they'll have watched The Muppet Christmas Carol or they'll, they'll have watched something or other <laughs> yeah. and they'll feel that they know the story pretty well. So there's kind of almost two versions that coexist. Yeah, and, and many versions, because if it's not the Muppet Christmas Carol, it's some other version of the of right. the, the tale that they've seen. I, I often think about Scrooge, you know, um, the, the, mm. the kind of modernised version with Bill Murray in the in inverted commas Scrooge oh. role. Yeah, you know that that's another it. another version of that particular tale. Sweeney Todd is an interesting case as well, Claire. In that, I suppose it's probably better known from the Sondheim adaptation than from anything mm. else. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it it was originally published in the 1840s. It was a very cheap, pulpy sort of a thing that was written by a a team of authors who were kind of getting paid by the word. They didn't really care that much about the story. Um, And I think it's certainly something that would have died away if it hadn't have been for the Sondheim adaptation. And then the kind of subsequent um, Tim Burton movie of that, you know, that kind of brought it back to life again Um, and, and gave Sweeney mm. Todd a, a kind of slightly nicer personality than he had in the original one which I think is important Yeah well nice in the world of Tim Burton is kind of an unusual well. type and that's <laughs> nice let's be honest Johnny Depp is Sweeney Todd here and he's he's singing to Helena Bonham Carter they're singing to each other she's Miss, Mrs Lovett talking about being friends don't know if I want to be either of their friend Stephen Sondheim there and Sweeney Todd uh, and uh, it was Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter there we heard in the Tim Burton film version of Sweeney Todd uh, Claire Clark speaking to me about Victorian adaptations and I suppose that gives us a sense of it 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 is a very dark piece and Tim Burton's worlds are often quite dark places but essentially Claire I wonder to what extent we get a kind of a romanticised or a fantasy version of Victorian England when we watch many of these screen adaptations. Yeah, certainly we do. You know, um, 
But in the original text of that, Sweeney Todd doesn't have any motivation for killing apart from the fact that he's just greedy. Whereas in the <laughs> film version, we get a, we get a nice kind of revenge story. He's revenging his dead wife. So, you know. But in general, I think there's a there's a a kind of sense of like looking back with romanticized eyes at what the Victorian world would have been like. Um, whereas it would actually have been an incredibly kind of dirty, smelly, crowded, horrible place for for most people you know unless yeah. you were the, the very richest in society um but we tend to think about it, it would be lovely you know when horse-drawn carriages and foggy streets and all the rest of it and uh, i don't actually think yeah. it would be that much and, fun and if we transported there a christmas carol more than any dickens adaptation gives us a sense of that because it's all wonderful at the end isn't it when we get the big yes. turkey and everything everybody's happy at the in each other's houses and even the employee yes. is treated brilliantly it's it's a yeah. very kind of happy cosy ending yeah I'm not really exactly what it would have been like to be a Victorian employee unfortunately <laughs> I think not I think not Claire <laughs> thanks for being with us this evening that's Claire Clark talking Thank to you us so about uh, Victorian adaptations and how characters live on in many different guises through their screen uh, adaptations that is our lot for this Thursday evening Paula Shields and Niall Fitzmaurice where the, broad, where the uh, researchers I beg your pardon uh, broadcast coordinator was Ollie Hamilton Ashley Gruffity was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Keshi. I will be back with you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 Faith No Brain On will be with you after the news.